0: Hello, Renoites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Renoites. My name is Connor McWibby. I'm your host, as always. Thank you for joining me for this episode. This is the podcast where I talk to all kinds of people from Reno who are doing interesting or important things. Glad to be here. When I was younger, growing up here in Reno, I was super into movies. One of my first jobs was at the Hollywood Video on Mayan that is now an AutoZone store and I worked as a production assistant on a local independent film during my senior year of high school. I went to college for film. I went to UNLV, hoping to eventually make a career as a filmmaker. Things changed. I never went into the film industry, but my guest today did, and has built a career as perhaps the most consistently working actor from the Northern Nevada area. On this episode, I'm excited to be joined by Christopher Palaha, who's appeared in recurring roles on many TV shows, including Mad Men, Castle, Get Shorty, Backstrom, as well as starring in a number of movies for the Hallmark Channel and appearing in some major films like Wonder Woman 1984, we talked about growing up in Reno and moving away and into a career in film, the differences between working in film and television, how Chris's religious faith informs the way he approaches his work, the writing process for a new series of books that he's working on, one of those was just released this last week, and There's an upcoming event this weekend in Reno for the Down Syndrome Network of Northern Nevada. Before we get to the interview, there are a couple important announcements this week. Live episode recordings are back this month at Black Rabbit Mead. Next Wednesday, that's October 26th at 7 o'clock, I will be interviewing Ian Watson and Elisa Garcia from Spoken View's Poetry Collective and recording part of their spooky-themed poetry slam and costume party for a special episode. So please... Check the link in the bio for more details on that. I would love to see some listeners there. And for any patrons who attend, your first drink's on me. Shoot me a message on Instagram, and I will hook you up with a free drink if you're a patron of Renoites. Speaking of Patreon, if you haven't signed up but would like to support the show, please consider visiting patreon.com Renoites to financially support the show for as little as a dollar an episode. Think of it like a tip jar. Huge thanks to some of my current patrons, Vicky from DJ Trivia, Abby from the Abbey Agency, Michael from Downtown Makeover, and Sam from the Olsen Group with REMAX Gold. If you have any guest suggestions, ideas for episodes, as always, my email address is connor, C-O-N-O-R, at com. And now, this week's guest, Christopher Palaha. Christopher Palaha, welcome to Renoites. Thanks for coming on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much, Connor. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Yeah, excited to have you on the show. So you're you're a working actor in LA. You've been on a lot of TV series and movies. You're kind of a constant presence on the Hallmark channel. I know you've done a lot of Hallmark movies. And you're from Reno. And there's not a lot of people that I know of from Reno who have gone on to kind of successful careers in the film industry. And when you were growing up here, I don't think we had necessarily a lot of arts and culture. Your dad is a local judge here in Reno. And I don't know if you had a lot of uh, arts in the household. So can you just talk a little bit about growing up in Reno and wanting to be an actor? Was that something you always wanted to do? And um, what made you want to get into acting?
1: Yeah, of course. I grew up in Reno, Nevada. And in the late 80s, the Nevada Film Commission made a ton of sort of uh, advances, I guess you could say, to Hollywood to sort of lure them in to film, particularly Northern Nevada. So Clint Eastwood came and did Pink Cadillac. Sister Act with Whoopi Goldberg came through Reno. Mm -hmm. And then there was this film called The Wizard, and it starred Fred Savage and Christian Slater and Bo Bridges. And I went to school with this girl named West Lear, and her mom was Sally Lear, and she was a casting director. And they needed extras. And we were in sixth grade, and... She said, do you guys want to come and hang out at at the time it was Bally's is the former MGM hotel casino. And there was a huge arcade. If you, if you could remember, if the people who are listening, remember, so it used to be MGM and the lion was there and then Bally's took over and they changed the lion carpet out for that. You know, there was this crazy floor pattern and there was this huge arcade and we filmed there for a day. And then while we were there, the production needed a few more extras to work in this other location. And I got hired to do another day on the film. I ended up working at this other location. And then while I was at that other location, they needed a stand-in for Fred Savage and a stand-in is basically somebody who the director of photography uses to set up the lights and the camera. So you work with the camera department. I was the same height as Fred Savage. And so they were like, do you want to be the stand-in for Fred Savage? And I was like, absolutely. That was a week long gig. I was going to get paid. I don't know couple hundred bucks a day for a week. I was like, absolutely, let's do this thing. While I was on set, the director is a guy named Todd Holland, who the way that the world works in life and how funny it is and how how circular things can be. I ended up working with Todd Holland 20 years later on another project called Misguided for ABC with Judy Greer and Chris Parnell. Anyway, Todd Holland saw me on set and looked at me and said, you know, you kind of look like a 12-year-old version of, of christian slater and i you know i had the eyebrows and, and he's like will you do a picture will you do a picture will you be like a photo double for christian slater in all of these flashbacks we just need to take some pictures of this family and he carried him around in a lunchbox, and at the very end of the movie all these pictures of his young family were shown and i was in those pictures hmm. and it was crazy because for me it was like all these doors opened it was you know go from being an extra to having another day, to being a stand-in, to being Christian Slater. And Christian Slater and I had this great conversation. I remember he was on a bench, he was smoking a cigarette and he was telling me about acting. And he was like, you don't have to worry about the words, the words, you know, he was telling me from stories that he had heard from Marlon Brando. So here I am hearing stories about acting from Marlon Brando through Christian Slater. And then all of a sudden, my mom walks up and he goes, is that your mom? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, she's a fox. (laughs) I'm sitting there going like, okay, this is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced. But Christian Slater thinks my mom's a fox. Um, And it was just enough of Hollywood magic. It was just enough of a taste for me. And there were enough wins for me to be like, that's cool. I think I could do that. And then I went to Brookfield Elementary School and Anderson. So I would ping between Anderson Elementary and Brookfield and... I remember in first grade at Anderson, we did the play of Cinderella. I was Prince Charming. Um, I didn't have any lines, but I remember dancing with Cinderella. And I was like, all right, that's not the worst thing in the world. And then a year later, we did this Winnie the Pooh story. I was Christopher Robin, and I had one line. It was, tut tut looks like rain. And I had this teacher. Her name was Mrs. Tetzloff. And she came up to me afterwards, and she said, you know, you were the only little boy I heard on stage. She's like, I heard your line. I was standing all the way in the back. So very early on, there were these wins in my life because I wasn't like the greatest athlete. I was athletic, but I wasn't the guy. I wasn't like the basketball player or the football player or the baseball player. Mm -hmm. And I was fast. I ran, I skied, I played tennis, but I was never like the best tennis player or the best, you know what I mean? And I was super competitive. I grew up in a household of, of, of uh, all men. My, I had three brothers, my dad. Uh, And like you said, my dad's a judge. He was a criminal defense attorney. They run on high octane. So there was a lot of competition and a lot of testosterone. And so the urge to be the best was always there at an early age. And finding your lane, especially in a big family, it's an important thing to do. And Mm -hmm. pretty early on, those artistic endeavors were leading to wins and they were unique enough and they were sort of, it it started to sort of, dig my own lane, so to speak. Then in sixth grade at Brookfield, I was cast as Peter Pan and my best friend and I, Graham Smith and I, he was Captain Hook. I was Peter Pan. And we just had the best time. I mean, I don't know how good those productions were, but we had a blast. And then the other thing that Graham and I did growing up in Reno was his dad had this really cool VHS camera And my dad had a VHS camera and we would use our dad's cameras and we would make these movies together, Graham and I. And sort of like John Houston, I didn't know this at the time, but I would shoot them to edit. So I would shoot, I would record what we needed. And then Mm -hmm. we'd we'd block out the next thing in rehearsal. And then we would shoot that so that we didn't, because we didn't have editing skills or tools. right? And so we were literally editing in the camera and we would make these little 15 minute movies. We did one on Dracula. We did... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, we did some crazy water movies like where, the, you know, the pool was in. He had a pool, <laughs> the pool was involved. So we were like making films at age, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, like, like basically six through middle school before leaving off for high school and maybe even younger than that. And then the other thing that Reno afforded me and my parents really come into this, you know, my dad, Music was always playing in the house. It was everything from classical music to the Beatles or to, you know, Rolling Stone. I mean, there was just music really playing. And then we would go see movies every Friday night as a family or every other Friday night, maybe. And it was the Park Lane 16. Were you around when mm-hmm. the Park Lane 16 oh, yeah. was domes that they knocked down for the pepper mill? We mm-hmm. oh, used yeah, to yeah. go to those movies and, I mean... I used to love going to the movies. And then there was also a movie theater that was down by the river. It's not the current ones. It's another movie theater that used to be down there. And dude, I could tell you what movies I saw when all the way back from Tootsie and chariots of fire, I could tell you where I saw dances with wolves, which was at the Meadowood mall theater. I don't know if that's still there, Mm -hmm. but there was an intermission. Um, I could tell you where I saw E.T., That was at the Park Lane 16, and and we were in the Superdome for that. So movies have always been a part of my life, and they were a part of my family's life. It was something that we did as a family. I remember my dad took me out of school to go see The NeverEnding Story like he literally was like, come, we're going to go play hooky. And we went to a matinee of the never ending story. And in that park lane 16 superdome, there was a balcony in one of those theaters and we were sat up on the balcony. Cause that was where I love to sit, look down over that huge, huge silver screen in that dome. So movies and the cinema and that beautiful sort of temple of sound and light that theaters are, have always been very special to me. And I think my dad, for my dad, he was the son of an immigrant. He was born and raised in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And his father worked at Bethlehem Steel his whole life. On the floor at first, it ended up being a manager in the steel mill. And for my dad, you know, his father's ambition for him was to be a professional, to be a a lawyer or a doctor or a businessman of some kind. And I feel like my father, his ambition was, okay, I've done this cool thing. Now, if I can afford my son the ability to go off and chase some extraordinary dreams, I would love to be able to do that. So I think he wanted me to be a lawyer. I think his dream was always that I would open up a, it'd be like Palaha and Sons, you know, <laughs> law firm in Reno, Nevada. But right. when I approached them and said, and I did leave Reno early, I always, this the part of my story about Reno is I left at 14 to go to boarding school and I've never, I've never lived in Reno since. So I left at mm. 14 Um, But my mom and dad still live there. My brothers are still in Reno. And I come home and I still call it my hometown because it is. So it still feels like home. I come back at least twice a year, every year, you know, we'll do summers up at Tahoe or we'll do Thanksgiving in Reno all the time. But when I went to boarding school, I went there to be an orthopedic surgeon because while law wasn't in it for me, I did like medicine and Graham's dad was a doctor and I knew all about, and my mom was like, you know, everyone breaks knees in this town and shoulders need, you know, relocating and back. Mm-hmm. And so you can be an orthopedic surgeon. And I was like, I think I could do that. And then when I got to high school, I got cast in a play, a streetcar named desire by Tennessee Williams. I was the only freshman cast. And again, I met that cast of, of actors. They were all seniors and juniors. And all of a sudden, I belonged in this community. I was very, very good at something and stood out. So all of a sudden the school at large was like, oh, you're really good at that. And girls noticed me for the first time I I was this tall, gangly freshman. And all of a sudden I had, you know, senior girls and junior girls talking to me. Like it was just, it, it opened up all of these doors and I just you know, I just kept walking through them. I remember calling my mom and dad being like, Hey, I know what I want to be when I grow up. And they're like, what? And I said, an actor. And there was just silence on the phone, <laughs> you know, because I think for them, it was scary for them. It was very much like, you're going to do what you're going to go try to do what? Yeah. Because it was obscene and absurd. And again, you know, meeting Christian Slater and having him call your mama Fox is very different than actually getting your, your, your trained, getting the doors busted open for you and making those connections being good enough to get hired and to then continue to get hired and to work and to do all of those things but i will say this for anyone listening from reno if i can do it you can do it and one of the coolest things to say to people here in hollywood or new york city is i'm from reno nevada and people always go wait i've never met anybody from reno nevada i'm like yeah people are from there and uh, it's always been a feather in my cap to be from Reno. And the fact that we're the biggest little city in the world has always been a, a it's always taken a place of pride for me as far as when I talk about where I'm from. And one of my biggest ambitions and hopes is to bring storytelling cinematically home to Reno, because I think Northern Nevada is fecund for storytelling. I think there's so many stories that we can tell, which is why my involvement with Cordillera Film Festival has been so fulfilling. Mm -hmm. And I'm coming home October 22nd for the Down Syndrome Network of Northern Nevada. So I'm starting to make my inroads back home and I want to continue to build those out because eventually I would love to have a production company and have crew and have, you know, know where the money's coming from and, and create content out of Northern Nevada. Because again, it's an awesome place and I would love to help tell those stories.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had Emily Skyle from the Cordillera Festival on a couple months mm-hmm. ago on the podcast. And yeah, talked was about awesome. Yeah, we talked about film in Nevada because it's, again, not currently a big filming destination, but it did have kind of a moment where there was a lot more draw for film production here. And I know that's a big goal of Cordillera and the Nevada Film Initiative. Exciting that there's a little more energy around all of the arts in Reno, including film. You mentioned that a lot of doors just kind of open for you pretty easily at a young age, like you kind of fell into some of the acting. But I saw an interview where you talked about when you first moved to LA that you auditioned over a 100 times that even now trying to book work, a lot of it is persistence and dealing with rejection. Can you just talk about the persistence element of being an actor when things don't always fall in your lap? Absolutely. I'd be happy to.
1: Yeah, that story that you heard was, was about my first year out of college. So I went to NYU. So I went off from, from Stevenson to New York University. And I was lucky enough to get cast in a play called Bread and Butter, which was Eugene O'Neill's first feature length play. So he was the guy who wrote Boundaries for Cardiff and Beyond the Horizon and Long Day's Journey Tonight, Iceman Cometh. And he'd written this play called Bread and Butter and had never been produced before. And so this theater company that I was working with was like, we're going to be the first people in the world to produce this play. And the New York Times came and the Wall Street Journal came and Hollywood Reporter came and Variety came and all these publications showed up and they reviewed it. And uh, I got rave reviews. And from that, I got an agent and a manager. And I was still a junior in college. So it was between my junior and senior year. So I was the only senior guy in my class that had an agent and manager and was like locked and loaded and ready to go. Mm. And I started auditioning and I, I'm not exaggerating. It was like 150 auditions later before I even got my first call back. I just kept getting no, 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 no. And I couldn't help but think that there was something wrong with me, that I wasn't good enough, that I wasn't what they needed. I didn't have what it took. I was watching other people that were sort of starting out as well. And they would pop and they would get a gig or they would do something at the public theater. They'd be cast as, you know, Ophelia or whomever in this in Hamlet at the public theater. And I was like, and I would audition. So the opportunities were there, but I wasn't able to close it for some reason. I mean, I remember auditioning for Woody Allen's casting director on three different occasions. I auditioned for a movie with Mark Ruffalo. He and I were sitting there talking. In a hotel like a lobby. And Mark Ruffalo had just been on Broadway, you know. So I was up I was like auditioning with these people who were already burnt like running on all cylinders and I was overwhelmed. My production company is called Podunk Productions because I did I felt like a kid from the middle of nowhere <laughs> who had no business, you know. But then you start to find out that everybody's from nowhere and everybody's got pretty similar stories, unless your dad was somebody in the business and you kind of have that nepotism working for you. But I remember just taking a deep breath and being like, okay, Chris, instead of trying to book the job, let's just get a callback. Let's just make this audition about getting a callback. And then if you get the callback, let's make that about getting the test, which is the the callback before the job offer, basically. And I said, let's just start getting some test deals and signing some contracts for the work and then worry about booking. And once I kind of got my mind right and stopped front loading one audition with the expectancy of a job, it became a lot more pleasurable. And ultimately, I started getting those callbacks. I started getting the tests, and then I started booking. Um, And the other thing was just being prayerful. Like I just had to start praying. I'm a person of faith. And I had to just line those two things up, that if God wanted me in that room, and if I was supposed to get the job, then it was going to be my job. And weirdly, you think about it, like, the intersection of humanity, a job is, it, it It matters. It's who you meet. It becomes your community. It becomes, mm-hmm. you know, one of my first jobs, my co-star introduced me to the woman I ended up marrying. I mean, like you're, the, it's the fabric of your life. And so I would assume that that matters if you believe in God and you believe that he cares for your life, then I think that it matters where you work. And I had to just remember that. And take a nice deep breath and not get as nervous. Cause I was getting real nervous too. It's like being a baseball player. If you you start choking up on the bat, you can't hit the ball. I was getting in my head. So I was like, all right, dude, you got to just give it away and know that your agents are not going to fire you know that you're going to have another shot and know that you're going to the job that's supposed to be yours will be yours and just Mm -hmm. enjoy later in life. I actually changed the way that I talked about auditions and I said, I'm going to start treating them like an act of worship. So I'm going to celebrate sort of the creator of the universe, the guy who gave me all my gifts anyway, by sort of going into these auditions joyfully and treating them as if they're the only performance. I'm going to treat them like a performance. Like it's all I'm ever going to get to do. And anything beyond that, it's going to be gravy. And really, since then, it's been, I don't even think of auditions or rejection. It's crazy how many things I read for and just toss into the the ether where I'm like, great, maybe I get it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I just booked a job for Amazon called Shelter. My son Jude filmed it. My other son Micah read with me. My wife, there were two characters, so she read with me. It became this family affair. So when I got the job, it felt really cool because we'd all, you know, put me on tape for it and Mm – um so it's become a joyful endeavor but it is marked with a ton of disappointment and a ton of rejection and if you don't have that thick skin or if you want immediate results it may not be the path for you because it really is just a lot of people telling you no mm-hmm. and later in life I started pitching projects as a producer and that's just like auditioning except you're front loading it with a ton of work you're coming up with a concept you're coming up with po- sometimes spec scripts and photographs of what the world's going to be like you're blown out with music you're coming in with all of this stuff and you've conceived an entire series of television or a film or whatever it is that you're wanting to sell and you're like presenting that to people and then they get to say yeah no that's not for us or yeah yeah, yeah we want to walk down this further with you and that's been a lot of rejection you have to take the wins where you get them you know what i mean those little wins you gotta that's what you live on
0: Yeah. What was the first job that you booked that felt like you had really made it in LA? What was your first big job where you're like, okay, cool, this is going to be a career? This is a career. I remember
1: the first, I was flown to test for Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And I ended up meeting Joss Whedon and Sarah Michelle Gellar and reading with them and ultimately didn't get the job. But I remember it feeling like, okay, I'm not just auditioning now. And like, they've flown me to LA, they've put me up in a hotel I'm one of three people for this job. Like now I'm getting ready. A week later, I went back to LA and flew out again to test for the show called Popular. I don't know if you remember that or not, but like, yeah, and it was one of those things where I was like, okay. And then it was February of 2001. I auditioned for a pilot called Third Degree and I got that pilot. And when I got my first pilot and made my first TV show, I was like, okay, we can do this. Because, you know, you get this paycheck and all of a sudden it's like, holy cow, that's, that's a lot more than waiting tables at the Grange <laughs> Hall. And and you're working with people and you know, I'm on set and I'm seeing like, oh, I can do this. All of a sudden it became very real to me. Like, I can do mm-hmm. this. Now, yeah. my next job, right after that, I played America's Prince, which was John F. Kennedy Jr., the movie about John F. Kennedy Jr. Which, when it debuted, 40 million people watched the first airing of it and then it aired – a second time that night and another 40 million people watched. So it hit like 80 million households. And I went to Times Square and I saw my poster in Times Square and I saw my face in the like literally I'd walk in the subways and there was a shot of my profile going all the way down the subways. Now that was the moment where I was like, okay, (laughs) (laughs) I I have arrived. And I thought that it was going to be from that point forward, everything I did was going to be, you know, Times Square worthy. Um, and again, that's not the case. Again, it's been a ton of grinding and a ton of hustling. But mm-hmm. you have those wins, and then you have a ton of failures, and then you have those wins, and then you have a ton of failures, and there's a nice ebb and flow. And and yeah. ultimately, it starts to look like a life.
0: Gotcha. The the first thing that I think I saw you in was Life Unexpected, which I moved to Portland in 2010. And I think that that show was on in 2010. So it was like my first kind of introduction to the city of Portland. I hadn't lived there before. And I was like, oh, cool. There's this TV show that takes place in the city that I'm moving to, which was kind of fun. So you've worked a lot in TV and in movies as an actor. What do you like to do? I'm guessing that TV shows are more kind of consistent and steady work. Uh, Movies, you might have more opportunity to have a lead kind of role, like you're kind of a star of the Hallmark movies. So what's that experience like as an actor between working in TV TV? and working in film?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, Connor. I feel like it's two different ways to skin a cat. So with the television series, you're telling a story over a long arc. So your choices get to be a lot more nuanced, but because you literally film from June all the way until March, your character on television and in series, they tend to be a little more like you or a little more reflective of who you are as an actor versus... Hmm. A film, it's so condensed, and it's a sh- shorter shot. So you're just going to tell that story that you can really pack in a lot more nuance, being different. Although that's not necessarily true for me. I, I'm, I'm thinking about like Life Unexpected in particular. With someone Bayes was very close to who I am, and I was yeah. I, I deliberately did that because I was thinking we were going to run for you know seven years, and I was like, I just want to play a character that's you know fun and you know close to me and all that stuff. And then there was a guy named Niedermeyer for Backstrom, who was totally different, so I think as an actor, you also have to keep yourself you have to stay interesting and you have to stay challenged and you have to stay you know you've gotta you've gotta do the work to to continue to get work and so I think if you were to watch all of my work and stack it on top of each other, the stuff that was done in Condor, he's just a different guy then then there was get Shorty, and here's this dude you know. Uh, Like, again, very different guys. So I don't know. I think ultimately to answer your question, doing work in film and doing work in television, it's the same. It takes the same energy. It takes the same level of preparation. You have less time to shoot it. But like you said, with television, if you're on a series, you're making a lot more money and you've got this steady gig. And so you can settle into a rhythm differently than you do with a film, which is like, you know, I did a, a small role in Wonder Woman 1984. And dude, that was like jumping on a moving train. Like that thing was moving and you could tell, and I had to jump in, do my thing and then get off. Like I knew mm-hmm. what it was. And that was, that was terrifying. I'm not going to lie to you. That was like the pressure and all, cause you don't want to show up and be the guy who starts fumbling on his lines and who's
0: like, yeah, but what do you, uh, what if, uh, and then it's like, you know, your job, you get in there, you do your job and you get out one of the things I'm, I'm curious about, so you've worked on a lot of Hallmark movies and I heard you like to say that you can watch those movies with your kids and like show them what you do. And I know you're a devout Christian. You do a lot of faith films too. Have you worked on any projects that you've found challenging content wise that maybe you're not as comfortable with the content of those?
1: Yeah. I mean like get shorty is a show that my kids haven't watched just because of, you know, my character in it, what happens to my character in it. There's a movie I did called beneath the leaves which I think you could still see on Netflix. I'm not sure where that is. That was just something that like, it was a job, some friends were making it and they like come and do this thing with us. And it was a cool opportunity to have a lead role and work with some people that I liked. But it's content that my kids won't be watching for a while. And it's interesting to me. I think that what we make, what we, so as humans, we ingest things, right? We ingest food and the food that we eat literally shapes our bodies if we're just porking out on kfc and mcdonald's we're gonna get heavy and we're gonna get you know potentially diabetes we're gonna get sick it's not gonna be good for us in the long run Mm
0: -hmm. if we
1: ingest a healthy balance of fibrous foods and nice proteins and all that good stuff our machine tends to run a little better well the same thing goes with what we ingest with our eyeballs with our ears in our lungs with you know the the, the drugs we choose to smoke or not smoke, whatever like what we put into our bodies has an overall effect. And if you're looking at like just for example, if you're looking at pornography all the time, or if you're looking at horror movies all the time or if you're looking at um, films that aren't necessarily porn or ultraviolent but cross that line where you're just being thro- you're being thrown into these situations, that kind of blindsides you. And Hollywood has a funny way of doing that. Like you'll be watching a movie and then all of a sudden you'll see a sexual act or you'll see something where you're just like, what the hell? I didn't even expect to see that what's happening right now. And you have to go, I'm cool with that. Or I don't know about that one. I don't like, there's this thing of like, you're having to weigh, you know, and I've always made the decision early on. I like entertainment to be inspiring and to be hopeful. The movies I loved growing up were always biographies. They were always inspirational. They were always movies that made me want to be a better person or a more interesting person or a more adventurous person. And those are the stories that I like to tell. Mm -hmm. I'm actually working with a local writer. His name is Mark Oakley. He and I went to Anderson together. We've been lifelong friends. And he hit me up about five years ago and said, Hey, do you have any books on screenwriting? Because he'd been a a writer, a novelist, and a copy editor, but he never tried his hand at screenwriting. And so I sent him a couple books and I said, Yeah, check these things out, see what you think. And then he sent me this synopsis for a film idea that he had. He's like, What do you think about this? And it's dark and it's a horror movie, but it's about spiritual entrapment and it's about sort of what happens when you when you touch that live wire. Because being a devout Christian means. Yeah, I get to believe in God and I get to believe in Jesus and I get to believe in all that stuff, the Holy Spirit and all that good stuff. But that also means I get to believe in the devil and demons and spiritual warfare and all those other things that come with living in a spiritual realm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Which I think no matter if you call yourself a Christian or you know Muslim or Jewish, or if you're pagan, or if, if you're in the occult, certainly you're feeling it. Or Native American spiritualism, uh, this idea of polytheism, the reason why people believed that God was in everything. At one point in time on this planet, people believed that God was in everything, that there were multiple gods, the God of the sun, the trees, the water, the wind, the air, the sky, the growing up, the dying, and the birthing. All of it had some sort of God connection to it, and things were sacred, and they were held sacred. So when you look at Native American beliefs, they're so close to the source. Those, those, those early people were so close to the source Uh, And when you look at paganism, it's so close to the source that it makes sense that you would ascribe godliness in all things. Mm -hmm. So that when you have Judeo-Christianity and you've got this guy, Abraham, who hears from this singular God who says, go to the desert and I am the one true God. And that's where you have this break. Literally, there is a break in the line of, of humanity from polytheism to monotheism. Now, what we've decided to do with that belief system and what man has done with it and how we run the churches and how convoluted and, and broken it is, that's just a reflection of us as humans taking something and, and manipulating it for our own purposes. Mm-hmm. We've run things into the ground and we'll run everything into the ground because that's our nature, right? But I don't know. There is this something that, that when you tap into that source, um, it becomes undeniable and if you tell stories that reflect that, you, people, it, people respond to it. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's just what I've always been drawn to. I've always been drawn to stories that reflect that light. But that doesn't mean that you can't tell stories that also reflect the darkness in relationship to the light. And so it's just, again, mm-hmm. going back to putting stuff in your body, you got to be careful what you watch and what you read and what you look at and listen to and eat.
0: Yeah, we live in a pretty like politically fraught and divisive world. And I know that the the movie industry and Hollywood, like I recognize that there's a lot more focus now on LGBTQ stories and characters and that some people who are religious feel threatened by that. And then on the flip side, I think that for uh, LGBTQ people or different marginalized groups, like they feel maybe threatened by religious messages. So how do you feel like uh, Christian filmmakers and faith films play a role in maybe mitigating the kind of divisiveness or like, what's the role of Christian filmmaking in our modern divisive culture?
1: I think you have to go back to what, like, if you're going to call yourself a Christian, I think you have to go back to what would Jesus do? And you have to look at Jesus and who was Jesus hanging out with? And he was hanging out with the marginalized people in his community. You know, there was a, a Samaritan woman, who A, was Samaritan, which if you go back historically, wasn't welcome, you know, among the Jewish community. And she was a woman, which was a sub, you know what I mean? And she was divorced like thrice over. There was all of these things. And Jesus just parked himself next to her in this amazing conversation. And I think when you get yourself out of the rut of of what the church is, because the church has a lot of bigotry in it. And I think the church has made a lot of people feel small. And I think the church has made a lot of people feel... Uh, marginalized, and the LGBTQ community, if they don't feel welcomed, that's a problem. And that's a problem. And people Mm -hmm. should feel the love of Christ from Christians. You know what I mean? And the Holy Spirit. I mean, I I think if you're a Christian, you're like, well, LGBTQ, you know, I have so many friends who are are homosexual. Uh, My agent is somebody who's, he's this awesome dude. And his partner, Brian, has been his partner his whole life. And I love my agent. And when the word sin comes out around his lifestyle, it literally like, it's like, you can't, so as Christians, they, they start to scratch the head because they want to say it's a sin, right? They go, well, that lifestyle is a sin. And there's this whole thing that happens where, you know, you start to break down, but to just love Paul, because Paul is a person and Paul. Paul is my friend, and Paul and I work together and to not judge anything about him who care- I mean at the end of the day, who cares <laughs> like who right. cares? you know what I mean yeah. like at the end of the day, who cares you got to let people be people um if there's harm being done, I know a lot of straight people who are in marriages that you know the guys cheat on the girl or the girls cheat on the guy, and you that's a sin too, if you want to call things a sin if you want to name things sins then Jesus go to Jesus again he said if you look at somebody with lust you've committed adultery in your heart like you've already you've already sinned against that person so if you want to really start stripping the conversation down and please i am no expert on this and if any of this gets misquoted i'm sure it's going <laughs> to land me in hot water so be careful as you as you produce this thing but if you want to strip it down all the way down it's about treating each other there's this amazing thing. So I, the book's coming out today called Where the Sun Rises. And in it, I talk about something that my father-in-law, my real-life father-in-law taught me, this, this philosopher named Buber. Uh, and Buber said, and he was a Jewish philosopher, and he said that we are in relationship with the world around us in one of two ways. We are in relationship with vows, which are equal to us, cut from the same cloth, or we are in relationship to its And an it is an axe, and it is a screwdriver, and it is a pin. It has a use, and I use it for a specific purpose. And a thou is something that I do not use because I'm in relationship with it equal to myself. And ultimately, we're supposed to be in a thou relationship with God. And I think the problem with our society right now and this divisiveness and this, I mean, the politics of identity is that we're seeing each other as its and not thou's. And when I look at you and I say, well, that guy's an it or she's an it or he's an it. Like it's easy to just disqualify the human and to stop treating them like a vow. And that's the problem. And so mm-hmm. on both sides of the coin, if you're a Christian treating other people like it's, you're wrong. And if you're on the other side of the coin and you're treating Christians like it's big it's or whatever it is, that's also wrong. And I think when people step up and start seeing people for people. And not for their color or their gender or their race or their sexuality or their religion or their politics. You're just going to start. If everyone treated each other like they were a guest on a podcast, think about it. (laughs) The world would be a much better place because people show up curious about each other. They're gracious hosts. They want to hear the stories. They want to know. I'm doing my little thing on IGTV, the Palaha and people mm-hmm. jump on. I have no idea what their life is. I don't know who I'm talking to, other than the fact that I just see a human being, and I want to know their story. Mm-hmm. I think if we could if we could get back to that and live in that, I think the world would be a lot better.
0: No, I think connecting with people individually is is pretty vital and something that we're kind of losing in the internet age. And I imagine that being in the entertainment industry and working in the storytelling world, it kind of probably gives you opportunity to learn more about people and how they work. And, you know, you have to be empathetic to be an actor. And I think that comes Mm -hmm. along with potentially being less judgmental and being more open-minded and having more understanding of how individuals really are. I think that's probably essential to being an actor.
1: Well, I think that's why you find so many actors who are progressive or liberals or, you know, you find these people because you do go back to that Greek who said, nothing that is human is foreign to me. I think it was Horace that said it. Nothing that is human is foreign to me. And when you start putting yourself in other people's shoes for the purpose of telling a story or enacting a role, you do. You start to see what makes people tick and why. And then all of a sudden, you start realizing like there's there's humanity in everybody.
0: You mentioned your book that is being released today. It's the second one that you've done with uh, co writer Anna Gomez. Tell me a little bit about being an author. Did you always want to be an author? Is that something that you've always had an interest in. Uh, tell me a little bit about the book process. Sure. Um, I didn't
1: always want to be an author, but it, I've always written. I remember I was keeping a journal back in high school uh, for English class. It started in English class. And then it just became something that I always loved to, to jot down high moments in my life, or even low moments, you know, when you're going through something. And it was always, I would go to the journal and write it all down. And then in, in college, I would have these huge reports due at the end of every semester in this particular professor's class. His name was Professor Bly. And instead of writing a paper, I would write a play. I would theme out the play to do what the semester was teaching us. And I would Mm -hmm. cast my friends and direct it. And so I wrote, and I had him uh, three out of my four years. And so I ended up writing six plays for this dude, for his classes, because he loved him. He was like, you can write a paper, write a play, whatever. And I would put on these plays. So I've always been able to write, and I've always loved it. But I never had the husband to call myself a writer And like you have this project here that started with the pandemic. I started a production company and I was looking for IP, which is intellectual property. And my neighbor said, I have a a friend of mine and she writes romance novels and she's interested in getting something sold to Hallmark. And I was trying to sell stuff to Hallmark. And I said, well, maybe this is a good match. Hmm. And we got on the phone and Anna effectively invited me the books that she'd written already. She'd written six books under the name Christine Bray. And they're all really good novels, they're they're intense. They're too intense for Hallmark. And I told her so. But you know, if you ever wanted to write a book, and we could own the IP and we could take it from page to screen, it'll be fun. And she said, Well, I'm writing this series of books and I'm a little stuck, and I'm I'm only on chapter eight and book one of five. Do you want to join mm-hmm. that process? And I said, are you, <laughs> I'm <was> like what? <laughs> I said. Why don't you talk to your husband and talk to your agent about that, and let's get back on uh, on Monday, and we'll talk. Meanwhile, I read one of her books called In This Year, and realized that her storytelling, like we were on the same frequency. The way that she tells stories, the way that I tell stories, because I didn't, I, I didn't want to read her book, and then all of a sudden realize it was a romance Harlequin, you know, like lit porn, and be like, ah, great. Mm-hmm. It's saddle <laughs> up to something like that. Cause that's not what our books are. Yeah. We, we got back on the phone on a Monday and we ended up having this really great conversation about her work and about what the collaboration could be. And we said, yes. And we went for it. We had paperwork signed on a Wednesday and we just started writing. So she sent me her first eight chapters. I read it. We started spitballing. We agreed on an outline and then she started writing her stuff. I started writing my stuff and then I would just send her chapters. And she ultimately pasted that first book together. So that was very much Anna just bringing me into the system and really kind of being a mentor and shepherding that first book into existence. Now with Mm -hmm. the second book, Where the Sun Rises, we each took a character. So she was Melee, I was Adam. And we knew where the story was going, but each chapter was very much dependent on the one that came before it. So she would write a chapter, I'd write a chapter. She would write the chapter responding to mine, I'd write that responding Mm -hmm. to hers. And we built this beautiful story together. I'm really proud of it. I'm really proud of the story. I'm proud of the messages that are inside of it. They're like, they're love stories. I think that's, it ain't, it ain't too shabby. You know what I mean? Like it makes people feel a little less alone and it makes people feel connected to something. And it gives you that warm feeling when you read it. So I feel, I feel like it's an honor to be able to do something like that.
0: Yeah. They, they take place in Hawaii, right? Why, why Hawaii? What's the connection with Hawaii?
1: Yeah. I think it was a mandate from her publisher. I think the mandate was just set it in Hawaii because people like filming in Hawaii. And we came up with the idea of like, well, if we're going to do a series, why don't we do one on each Island? So the oh. first one's Oahu, the second one's Kauai, the third one's going to be Molokai, the fourth one's Maui, and the fifth one's the big Island. Um, and there's seven islands. So we technically could do, we could do two more books. <laughs> Maybe we might, we might squeeze in two more, but um, yeah, that's why
0: right on like i mentioned you you're doing a lot of different things and now you're a live stream youtuber tell me tell me about the palachitakwa cuz that's what is the Pala direct, Ch- yeah what is the Pala <laughs> Chautauqua? you're talking directly to your audience basically so can you talk a little bit about why you started doing that and how it's different than the other work you do and kind of what you get out of that format
1: sure i mean again it goes back to the pandemic it was march 17th 2020 and I think that I had COVID in September. And I had a doctor look at my x-rays from that from that time and she was like, Yeah, I mean that's what we call COVID lug. But at the time, they didn't have that word COVID. They didn't have anything described to it. But I went to a pulmonologist, I had a CT scan, I had the x-rays from the ER guy look at my lungs being like, This is weird, I've never seen this before. So it kept escalating. And it was what it was was my my lungs were just filled with fluid and pneumonia. It settles at the bottom, but with COVID it's, it's webs throughout. Hmm. So it did, it looked like a sponge and it felt like I had sponges in my lungs. I felt like I was going to drown. And um, frankly, I said to my wife, this was in September. I was like, I think I'm going to die. And she's like, well, you should go to the hospital. So I drove myself to the ER. And that started the process and I didn't die, but it was like two weeks of, it was, I've been coughing so hard. I thought I was going to break my ribs and I would vomit from coughing. It was not good. Mm -hmm. And so when COVID happened, I was filming Jurassic world and I just did not want to catch it. Like I was like, my lungs are still healing from, and then to go even deeper. So that's September 19 in February of 2018, I got pneumonia, like actual pneumonia. So I just had pneumonia. My lungs took a year to heal. And then in 19, I got this this other sickness that just wiped me out. And I was like, I feel like I'm, if I catch this, if I catch COVID, I feel like I'm going to die. So I didn't want to catch it. So I was really scared. And then if you turned on the news, it was all fear mongering. No matter which channel you were watching, it was just the worst of the worst. And we were all going to die. If you Mm -hmm. recall, I mean, it was like, everything was bleak. And then the racial stuff happened and people were, I mean, like everything, like the world was blowing up and all I needed to do was, I just I, I wanted to talk to people and see where they were and wh- I just wanted to take a temperature of the people that were out there. In fact, I saw the Indigo girls playing a concert live from their living room. and I was like, "Hey, if the Indigo girls can do it, <laughs> I could <can> do it. <laughs> I was like, "If they're not above it, I'm not above it." And I right. went live on Instagram one day and it started as a place for people to come. It was a secular show at first. And it started as a place for people to come and just tell their stories and read poetry that they'd written or sing songs that they wanted to sing. And it was just about community. And I would just go live with total strangers. And I'd give each person about seven minutes. And I filled an hour with this. So it was just seven little mini shows, one after Mm -hmm. the other. And it was a real treat. And then on Good Friday I talked about death and Jesus and the resurrection and all that stuff and 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 had really talked about my faith publicly for the first time in a, in that way in that bold of a way. And the response I got was overwhelming. And then as I kept going with the Palashitakwa and realizing that you know Christianity is just a story. It's really just a story and either you believe it's true or you don't. But regardless it's a story that we tell ourselves and and if it's a true story, then then we're off to the races. And if it's not a true story, then you have to find out, well, what is it offering you in place of? Um, and so I really wanted to get to the question, like the heart of that question. What is it offering? What does being a Christian mean? And if you're claiming that you are one, what is the evidence of that? And so we started talking about the fruits of the spirit, like what it means to be good and loving and kind and patient and peaceful and uh, having self-control and then I would also bring people on to talk about exercise and sugar eating and basically just what it means to be alive in the face of death. I mean, when you're cut down to it, we're all going to die. And what do we do between now and then? What are we doing with that time? What stories are we telling to get through the day? What stories are we telling ourselves? What stories are we telling each other? And are they making us better people? And so that's kind of what the Chautauqua has been about, and we've been doing it. I've been doing it for three years. Every Sunday at four o'clock, you're welcome to come on and can <laughs> talk. But it's just been an interesting thing. It's been an uh, and and the community that has sprung out of it. There's all these little pockets of community that have developed, and it's cool. I I mean, it's just it's something that's been very overwhelming. It was free forever. I just monetized it this year. There's a subscription. I've shortened the show to a half an hour, which is easily digestible for for a larger audience. And you can see it mm-hmm. on YouTube or whatever. And then I now bring people on in the subscription format because it's just more, it's a safer environment for people. It's, it's really intimidating. That. Like just to jump online, I get close to 300 people live, but then this thing gets viewed on average about like by the end of the week, it's about twenty thousand people will have checked it out. And then there's just it just has this life that kinda keeps growing. And it's that's a lot to put yourself out there in front of that many people if you're not trained for it or really expecting mm. it. So the subscription, you know who you're talking to and it's a closed circuit thing. And so it's a just a safer kind of more yeah, quieter community.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Doing interviews, doing unscripted conversation that is made for public consumption is always a little bit intimidating because, you know, there's always the risk that you're going to say something wrong or that you're going to, you know, not present yourself the way that you would like to. So I think it's a higher risk, but high reward when you do that kind of communication with people.
1: Yeah. Well, especially because, you know, it was amazing. Like there was an episode on forgiveness and what does forgiveness mean? And again, the reason I brought Christianity into it is because there's a Christian perspective of forgiveness, but then there's also just, you don't have to be a Christian to forgive somebody. You don't have to be a Christian to have joy, but what is joy? You know, what is that? What is joy? And so for forgiveness, it was so fascinating, man. And a lot of people brought up a lot of stuff, but there was this one girl in particular who at 22 was hit by a drunk driver and he took off her leg and she was a track star. And all of a sudden now she's got one leg and feels that pain every day and it itches. And uh, and she's like, every day I have to wake up. And I have to make this new decision to forgive this driver who made the choice to drink and then get behind the wheel and hit me. And she's like, and I have a really hard time forgiving him. And we talked about that. And the only answer I had was it it probably is going to take you the rest of your life to forgive him and probably multiple times a day to make the decision. And there's probably going to be moments that that comes up in your head and you're going to say, F that guy. I hope he rots and I hope he dies and I don't want to forgive him. And then you're going to have to forgive. You know what I mean? It's that constant process. And I think that's, it's that reminder of the fact that we're all in relationship and that each relationship takes constant renewal. Mm. You can't take any relationship for granted. Not, not the one with yourself, not the one with your parents, not the one with your friends or your spouse, not the one with God. If you choose to believe in a God that loves you, that's um, a relationship. And everything within that relationship is constantly needing renewal. It's all evergreen, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think, so for me, it's been this unbelievable learning curve of talking to people and learning from people, learning stuff that I never expected to learn. And I'm not an actor on that day. Like I get to be an actor. I'm an actor for that's what I do for a living, but I'm a human being in that moment for an hour every Sunday. And it's, it's unfair. The scales aren't balanced because I'm an actor and they're my audience and they're fans <laughs> and, but it's like, it's a weird, fascinating thing, but events like the pandemic put us in that mindset of, of being aware, again, the stuff that's happening in Ukraine right now, or Iran, like you can't run from the stuff that's, that's daunting and harbingers of death really. And you can't, you can't turn your back on those things. And so it's better to, to then ask the question, well, what do I do while I'm alive? What mm-hmm. is it about? What do I have right now, right here, right now?
0: Yeah. Yeah. You're coming to Reno this coming weekend for this event with Down Syndrome Network of Northern Nevada. Can you tell me a little bit about this event that's coming up? And it's also with David DeSanctis, who is in a movie with you about Down Syndrome. Uh, I haven't seen the movie, but can you talk a little bit about the the film, Where the Hope Grows, and this event that you're doing this weekend?
1: Sure. Yeah. So, on Friday night, the 21st, we're doing a screening of Where Hope Grows, which is a film starring David DeSanctis and I. And I mean, that movie's technically about hope. His character, he, David, has Down syndrome. So his character obviously has Down syndrome. And he's a guy who works at a grocery store in the produce department. And he just lives this life of joy. And he's got this he smiles and hugs everybody he meets. And my character was a baseball star. He played in the majors and then struck out pretty dramatically. Uh and decided to drink himself to death. And he's got this 18 year old daughter. We don't know where the mom went. And the minute she turned 18, he's like, she's her own person. He, and he's, he wants to kill himself with alcohol until he meets David's character produce. And this weird little friendship develops. And, and my character Calvin is like, why are you so happy? What's your secret? Cause you shouldn't be. Cause look at your life. And David's like, my life is amazing. And, and, and like, all of a sudden he gives him this new perspective and the movie being about someone with Down syndrome and, and him being a lead, it's the biggest biggest role that anyone's ever had with Down syndrome to this day. As far as lines, we're talking literally like uh, Guinness Book of World Records, like the most lines a character with Down syndrome has ever said in a movie. And going around the, the country with that film and meeting families who have kids with Down syndrome or a sister or brother with Down syndrome and having those people with Down syndrome see themselves represented on – film that's why representation is so important that's why when hollywood hits hits representation whether it be you know black women or lgbtq or whatever the representation is it's so important for young people to see themselves on screen to be represented because when they see that they realize they're not alone they realize well if he can do it i can do it they realize that life isn't just a constant Barrage of being hammered on because you're different or, you know, marginalized or not. And so it it was amazing to see that with Where Hope Grows. It was an amazing film to watch. And the message is really positive. So David's gonna come to Reno. We're having a screening at UNR Friday night. And then on Saturday, we're doing this entire day called the Lucky Few Fall Festival. And it's with the Down syndrome network of Northern Nevada, which is an amazing non-for-profit that helps families navigate the systems that are in place. To help them. Let me read the official tagline because it's worth it. The Down Syndrome Network of Northern Nevada, they're creating richer lives through inclusion and awareness. Every day, their volunteers and board members and friends and families and community members and part-time staff create opportunities for individuals with Down Syndrome or other developmental disabilities to live richer lives. And the Down Syndrome of Northern Nevada is a network of family, friends, and individuals dedicated to provide information, education, and support as we raise awareness of Down Syndrome in Northern Nevada. It's a really cool foundation and what they're doing is awesome. And I'm so proud to be a part of it. And on a lark, we just we were like, why don't we do something in October? Let's see what the turnout is. Western Nevada Supply, they are sponsoring us. They partnered with us. I believe Dolan Auto Group is partnering with us. It's a pretty incredible sort of outpouring from the community. And it's all Northern Nevada. It's all local and it's for the families in Northern Nevada. So it's a it's a really cool thing that that I'm so proud to be a part of.
0: That's awesome. What did we miss? What else do you want people to know about you or your oh career? I feel like we covered a pretty pretty wide range. I think you did everything. <laughs> you got more than you're going to. How long are your shows? Uh I I don't I don't edit down that much. I probably this will end up being like 55 minutes to an hour. I don't do too much over editing, but I always like to give people the opportunity to you know, an hour's not that long. It's wild how quickly an hour goes by when there's a lot to talk about. And I'm just generally yeah. a curious person. So it's very easy to, to run out of time and be like, oh crap, we forgot to talk about this thing that you're doing. or this thing you care about. So,
1: Well, I mean, the Hallmark movie, We Wish You a Married Christmas is going to also premiere the same weekend. So October ah. 22nd, people can Saturday night, if they're at home and they want to watch the Hallmark channel, they can come see me at the Lucky Few Fall Festival and go home and turn on, turn on the TV and watch a fun movie. There you go. That's it. That's all
0: I got. Cool. Well, Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really nice to meet you. Our moms are friends. So I'm like familiar with you, but I hadn't actually met you until today. So it's nice to actually meet you and chat with you and learn about your career and stuff, especially because it's so varied. You know, I think that originally I was like, oh, yeah, Chris is an actor. So we can talk about, you know, being an actor. But I think it's interesting that we got to talk a little bit more about not just acting, but also your faith about writing about the advocacy with down syndrome network, all kinds of stuff. So thanks for taking the time.
1: Of course, man. It was my pleasure, Connor. Thanks for having me on your show.
0: Listeners. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of Reno Whites, and special thanks to my guest, Christopher Palaha for coming on the show. Great to learn about his career and growing up in Reno and just about the film industry. I have a strong interest in film and it's cool to be able to talk to someone who's actively working in that world. Be sure to check out the event this weekend for the Down Syndrome Network of Northern Nevada. Details for that are on the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please do me a favor and spread the word. Let people know about the show. Word of mouth means everything. So share those posts on social media, like, comment, subscribe, etc., etc. Really appreciate all of the support from my listeners. So thank you for helping spread the word so more people can find the show. This season of Renoites is produced by myself and my co-producer, Lynn Lazaro. And that's all I've got for you this week. See you next time.